Magic.me is the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. You can learn everything there from chaos magic to hermeticism to meditation to how to supercharge your finances and take absolute control of your destiny. In short, you get all of the tools you need to turn chaos into beautiful, scintillating order and master your life. It's incredible. You've probably heard me talk about it on the show quite a lot, but check it out. It's growing fast. And I just want to say, if you're confused about where to start, because I have so many courses there, the Adept Initiative is the place to go. The Adept Initiative is the flagship course on magic.me, and it contains everything you need to know to master the most profound ancient techniques of changing your consciousness and the most modern and cutting edge tools and systems for absolutely turning your life into a masterpiece. You are really going to dig it. Go check it out, and I will see you in class. It's magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E. Yes, hello. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. Our guest today is long in coming. We're talking to the charismatic frontman Alexis Mincola of the band Three Teeth, who has been very active over the last few years and has toured with Tool and Primus and uh, engaged in an Operation Mindfuck across the entire planet. Super interesting guy. Here's his bio. Here's what he has to say about himself. Uh, iconoclastic Three Teeth frontman Alexis Mancola is dedicated to exploring the relationship between archetypes, mythologies, history, and the hypocrisy of the human experience. He says, I'm constantly dissecting the space between chaos and order in the eternal psychic battle between forces with opposing beliefs and perspectives that I like to call the cosmic taint. Well, with a bio like that, there's not much else to say other than uh, a super, super nice and interesting guy. He's obviously very into magic, and we talk about that quite a lot in this episode. Uh, we talk about uh, dealing with an increasingly hypnotized and, and conformist world, I mean, in, increasingly to say the very least, and the role of the artist, the role of the magician, the shaman uh, in navigating sleeping human consciousness in, in such a situation, and how to put out agitprop to shake people a little bit, a topic that I think is more relevant than ever. Uh, and we also talk about a fairly uh, sensitive and controversial topic, to say the very least, which is guns, guns, guns. Yes, Alexis is super into guns. You can you can see it on his Instagram page. Uh, and I am too, uh, quite honestly, which I've kind of mentioned in passing in previous podcasts. I don't make a big public deal out of it. But uh, it's something that my mind has changed about in, in the last few years, and that's something we explore in this episode. So listen with an open mind. I think that um, if you're outside of America, you may look on <laughs> look on to uh, the fondness of, you know, Americans' fondness for guns with, with horror, perhaps, or maybe envy, uh, depending on who you are. If you're in America, you very likely have an extremely strong opinion on the subject. So all I ask is that you you listen with an open mind and perhaps set aside preconditions and prejudices and judgments, at least for the length of the episode, and then you can, you know, maybe maybe check in with yourself and how you're thinking about it afterwards. But just listen with an open mind. Uh, you are listening to two, you know, very conscious and conscientious individuals talk about 
you know, um, a culture and a topic that they, you know, are exploring with magical consciousness and, and from unexpected perspectives. So I think this conversation will hopefully offer something valuable to that debate. Um, whether you, if you're in America, whether you are pro or against, uh, you can't ignore the fact that gun ownership went through the roof during the COVID period. Uh, there's different different stats from different places, but uh, I just checked a New York Times article, and uh, I think the latest stats is that 39 percent of all of all of all 39 percent of all American households own at least one gun. Most of those households own several guns. Uh, there are actually more guns in America than people, uh, and that number's up from 32 percent in 2016. That is a massive increase during the 2020 to 21 period alone. Uh, 21 million Americans bought guns in 2020, and that is a 60% increase in sales over the prior year. Uh, and that is not slowing down at all. People are going crazy. So you may be totally against this, or you may be one of those millions of people who is a gun owner. Um, this is a topic that is not going to go away. It'll be with us for you know, the rest of our lives. So something to maybe look at or reconsider with uh, an open and conscious mind. Americans have been hoarding guns like toilet paper. And depending on who you are, you may consider this a terrifying sign of an impending apocalypse or a new civil war. Or maybe you think this is actually a good thing. This is a sign of Americans uh, from actually from all walks of the political spectrum, because those are not all red state purchases, quite a lot of them are blue states, quite a lot, perhaps the majority actually. Um, maybe this is a sign of Americans realizing that actually all of their freedoms are important and the Second Amendment exists for a reason. Maybe you yourself have had a, um, a moment of reconsideration on this topic, or maybe not. But a lot of people are, that's for sure. The other thing is, Gun ownership is changing in America. It's classically been uh, stereotyped as kind of red state rednecks who are hoarding all these, you know, massive arsenals. Um, that's certainly not the case. Um, people from all walks of life are new gun owners or prior gun owners, um, all races, all genders, all sexual orientations. And um, I think if there's one thing that um, we talk about in this conversation is how this topic has a very, you know, paradoxical um, tendency to bring people together across cultural divides, where in theory, people are kind of, uh, you know, buying guns because they're scared of each other, but then they have something in common to, to talk about. So I, I think that's worth commenting on and, and quite interesting, you know, as I, as I, as I said to Alexis on Instagram chat after we had this podcast conversation, you know, may, maybe fear of each other will bring us all together. So uh, that's one of the many topics we talk about in this podcast. Uh, listen with an open mind. Listen with an open mind. And, and, you know, this is a hard topic to not have a strong opinion about, but I think it's a very worthwhile conversation that we had. Okay, uh, a note of apology the audio on this conversation is not the best. It is completely my fault. We did this on Zoom. And as we all know by now, Zoom often does not provide the best audio quality. Um, and 
my mic was the, the settings on my mic were were off and I didn't realize that while we were having the conversation in addition to the the usual zoom clipping and dropped dropped out things um, hopefully not a huge deal but I you know I, I I take this stuff pretty seriously and this is frankly a little bit embarrassing particularly because I'm interviewing a professional musician so Lilac Studios, where I do this podcast, is growing. I'm I'm addressing this issue because actually my mic gain has been improperly set on previous episodes as well. I've just ordered ordered um, a new hardware preamp to drive my mic uh, more appropriately, and it's a learning process. And uh, it is embarrassing that even after five years of doing this podcast, I can have the occasional slip up on audio. But but. Uh, Believe you me, this is a topic of unbelievable obsession for me, so uh, we will return to good audio as quickly as I can as I can muster. Um, so hopefully everything's okay, though. It only affects my side, uh, and so Alexa sounds great, um, I, and I did everything I could to repair the audio. So hopefully it's okay, and it's certainly intelligible, and you can hear everyone. Other than the fact that Zoom, the other thing about Zoom is when both people are talking, it kind of goes crazy. So, um, hopefully the good outshines the technical difficulties on this one and please accept my apologies on that, but, uh, I've smoothed it out as best as I can. All right. So without any further ado, please enjoy this interview with Alexis Mincola. Hello. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. Thank you for having me, Jason. I'm glad we can finally do this. I feel like we've been flirting online for uh, a little bit of time, so it's nice to cut the foreplay out and get to the conversation. Yeah, and by flirting, you just mean like 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 talking about like doing gun talk, comparing guns. <laughs> exactly, t- t- talking about gun stuff, which is basically like the highest form of dude flirting. It kind of, yeah, it kind of is. Well, I have a theory about dudes, right? Which is that you know most dudes are like obsessively detail oriented and techie and like every dude has their own thing. Like it could be yes. like sports trivia. It could be comic books. It could be music gear. It could be guns. Absolutely. It could be whatever, you know? So, if, but if you, if you get two guys who are into the same, like, like techie thing, they just start talking robot language at each other. And like everyone else is like, what the hell? Exactly. <laughs> and like the sad. dopamine just goes off the charts. Yeah. <laughs> they're just super excited about it. And they just like get lost in the sort of, you know, a time warp of excitement, you know? Right. Right. No, totally. It's like, it's, it's a hilarious phenomenon. So, um, but why don't we, uh, before we get into that and alienate everybody, um, what, <laughs> why don't you just start off, uh, why you want to start off is giving people a little bit of background on, on your work and your projects and, and who you are and what you're up to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my name's Alexis Mancola. I'm the uh, front man of a, of a project, a band called Three Teeth, which um, I guess it's a band. The idea was always to kind of build a, a, an art project on the chassis of a band, um, because my background before being in the band was more visual arts and graphic arts and being an art director and even did a, a tour of duty in the advertising world. So probably why I decided to start a band would be to atone for my sins of the advertising world. But what did and, you, uh, you know, Europe, what did you maybe advertising? Cause I did the same thing. That's interesting. I actually started as a copywriter. Um, and then sort of by virtue of working with enough art directors, I, I sort of segued into like stealing their skill set and then becoming an art director and then eventually a creative director and kind of started my own little boutique agency and uh eventually said you know what this is not the mark i want to leave on the world 
um, and which is why I kind of use that skill set to, I guess, approach creating more subversive forms of art um, to, I guess, undo some of the the vibes that I had created initially. Well, we share that in common then, although I, I went into advertising uh, specifically to learn it as a magical tool set, you know, to do what I'm doing now. But sorry to interrupt your flow. Go ahead. No, no, I think that's a very interesting perspective, too, because I do think there's something extremely powerful about advertising um, and, and its sort of uh, magical context, which is very rarely sort of discussed. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I was as aware on my magical path at that time that I worked in advertising um, to sort of really fully grasp that, um, but much later did, um, especially when you know I became more of a, a designer um, and crafting more of um, you know sigils and such. Um, but yeah, no, that's interesting. And then from there, yeah, I just sort of have been working on this band project for the past 10 years, which really was not the goal when I started the project. I was like, yo, we should make an album. Um, and then eventually somewhere like after making the first album, we ended up on tour with Tool, which was like beyond my wildest dreams. Wow. Um, and then that sort of just launched the project. Like we did like a, you know, a 30 date stadium tour with Tool and Primus after sort of starting this band is sort of just like a fun little hobby. And then at that point it was like, you know, the booking agents come after you and managers and all that stuff. And you're like, I guess we're going to do this as a career. And then, you know, eventually try and uh, catch up with yourself somewhere along the line, which I'm not sure we've, we've done yet, but <laughs> that's a pretty, yeah. uh, that's a pretty uh, unexpected origin story. Right. So, so did you go into that with magical intent though, even if it wasn't to become a rock star? I mean, did yeah. Yeah, I think I think um, creating the album was was sort of the first album was a, a sort of diary for how I felt at the time. Um, so I knew I needed to kind of like get it out of me and sort of create the sort of like, you know, I remember my, my brother was like, I always used to say, it's not final till it's on vinyl. And like this idea, I was like, I just want to make a record. Do you know what I mean? And like, that's where I want to memorialize all these thoughts and ideas that I was feeling at the time. Um, and there was, you know, that at that point was very much a dripping with magical intention. And then, uh, you know, when we got it out there, like I said, it was like the fact that anyone else liked it was crazy. Um, here we were just sort of like resurrecting some almost like 90s industrial vibes, which were really like born out of the fact that like I didn't think anyone was really doing a good job of that anymore. So I was like, I can only listen to so much back catalog ministry that I'm like, maybe we should make a band. Um, so I think it was sort of born out of like, you know, if it's not there, make it for yourself. And then the fact that anyone else liked it, like I said, was just a big bonus. Um, and, you know, we were playing just small shows, even like the Viper Room and uh, Adam Jones, the guitarist for Tool, came out and saw us play. And the strangest sort of like phenomenon of like him and me becoming very close friends. And then like, I'll never forget the day that he was like, basically like, hey, you want to go see a movie? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And it was um, The Martian with Matt Damon. And we were in line getting popcorn. And he was like, hey. Um, so we're going to go back out on the road and I showed your stuff to the rest of the guys in the band and I thought it was really cool. So you want to go out and tour? Um, and I was like, what? Like, I didn't even know how to respond. And he's like, do you want butter on your popcorn? I was like, shut the fuck up. Like, I couldn't even process <laughs> how crazy that was. And then like, I was like, of course I do. And gave him a big hug. And then I had to sit through like two and a half hours of Matt Damon growing shit potatoes on Mars where like, all I wanted to do is like call everyone, my family and like my friends and the band and he was like, put your phone away, put your phone away in the middle. I'm like, so I had to sort of not pay attention to the whole movie as my sort of brain was reeling in the thoughts of, can I even play uh, an arena of 20,000 people? Because I've never done anything close to that. Um, but I just don't think you say no to an opportunity like that. 
you don't say, Hey, can we do it next year? You just go, fuck. Yeah, let's do it. We'll figure it out on the way. Um, it's sort of a jump off the cliff and build your wings on the way down kind of theory, which, you know, I guess paid off. To a certain yeah. Extent. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I've never played before 20,000 people in a stadium, but so I imagine it's, it's quite a head trip, but I, I was just going to point out, you know, sometimes life is, uh, life is like, I mean, people spend their whole lives trying to prepare for stuff and have plans and particularly yeah. magical thinking people, you know, like to follow books and grimoires and step-by-step instructions and things like that. Like sometimes it's just actually, that's how it is. And you have, you gotta have the presence of mind to say yes, you know, to whatever that is. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. I, it's weird. Cause I'm like, in many ways, I'm very much so into like planning and, and plotting and sort of like outlining sort of like these sort of uh, grand plans. And then the other half of me is like, you know, uh, preparing is for cowards. Just fucking do it. You know what I mean? Like, and I feel like I'm constantly sort of oscillating between those two energies and the times that I've really just sort of, you know, thrown caution to the wind and tried these like spontaneous, like, let's just do it. I have really paid, paid dividends for me in life. And I feel like, um, you know, going back to the idea of playing in arenas, is not too different from anything else. If anything, it's actually less personal, like playing a mm. club show. Danny Carey, like the drummer, I remember we were talking back backstage because he still played in like a couple jazz projects. He's like, yo, when you're playing like a club and there's like 200 people in it, he's like, you got to kill every motherfucker in the room. Like you see people's eyes. Do you know what I mean? But when you're playing in an arena, you actually don't see anyone. It's just like this giant sort of amorphic sort of static that's out there that goes occasionally, which is in many ways much less personal and like kind of um less intimidating in a weird way uh, if you learn how to sort of like mentally sort of deal with the fact of twenty thousand people out there um for me it's always sunglasses as you can see i'm wearing them right now i feel like that's always been my one sort of a little boundary that i'll keep in the entertainment business is i'm always wearing glasses yeah. <laughs> like bono <laughs> yeah exactly except his are always like you know uh frameless and in blue or something like that which, yeah you know, uh, I'm, I'm looking That's forward to when, I'm, I'm looking forward to when you become a figurehead for the, the World Bank. Uh, I think that would be. I mean, that would, that would be great. Part. That would be huge. <laughs> uh, that's that's the um, goal ultimately, right? Uh, absolutely, take over the IMF and the World Bank. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Why? why then I can, why then I can actually perform my insidious plans. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about you know playing arenas that that makes sense to me it's funny because the internet is like so potentially like so much huger even than arenas i mean like you see people even like random youtubers getting like millions or twitch streamers getting like millions and millions of viewers and it's just like it's uh you know it's just a statistic to, to quote now or stalin whoever said that but it's uh yeah you don't even think about no, it no it's, it's definitely crazy. like the amount of, that you can it's definitely different online, but it is like, yeah, the power of reach via this sort of prosthetic digital nervous system that connects us all at this point is wild. Um, and it's sort of as daunting and scary at times to release a work into that world because, you know, there's a comment section, which in an arena, there is not. Um, yeah you hear a guy from the raptor say you fucking suck and you're like cool like, <laughs> you, you do get that occasionally so there's a, a slight comment section but you know there's nothing more horrifying than a youtube comment section i feel like that yeah. actually might be um you know one of the uh, i always, I always the world, conceptualized 
like I, 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 I'm much better at this now, but I used to be really bad about joining in the comment section and like replying like your mom to people and things like that. But it's like I always figured jumping in, jumping in the comment section is kind of like jumping into the mosh pit or stage diving and nobody catching you sometimes. It's exactly like that. It's like I have a sort of a, you know, don't feed the trolls policy because at the end of the day, that's all anyone's trying to do is like, you know, make the conversation about them. And that's the funny thing. You could make like your life's greatest magnum opus and like someone's essentially commenting on something just to sort of like draw the attention to them. Do you know what I mean? Like there's very little, it's very, um, you know, little feedback about like, hey, this is great work. It's always just like, you know, something that's like, well, I'm going to outsmart you now and draw the conversation to me. And you're like, cool, this is fun. It's ridiculous. I mean, not to get too off on a tangent with this, but I've I've seen it, particularly artistic and creative people are like, you know, to a fault sensitive and, you know, very invested. Yeah. They're, you know, they're showing their soul for a living, you know, but but I've seen multi-million dollar projects tanked by this. Like, I think the most recent dramatic example was, I don't know if you're into video games at all, but the, the game Last of Us 2, right. which in, in my mind is mm-hmm. one of, is, is the greatest video game ever created and probably yeah. the best. It's like high, it's like high art. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. It's like, it. I have, it's like the type of video game that can make you cry. You know what I mean? Like oh yeah. A lot of video games that are sort of pulling on heartstrings in the way that. Is. That is so good. It is like, it's like a true, a true masterpiece. Yeah. I feel like it's better than, yeah. Or you could, you know, to be less over the top, you know, you could easily say, it's like you could not argue that that's not better than like binge watching 90% of what's on Netflix. It's better than... No, Netflix. totally. It's, oh, it's, right. it's putting you in the driver's seat of cinema. You know, like it's it's a, it's an amazing, powerful experience that I think that a lot of people don't give video games the credit they deserve in terms of how lo- how high of an art it is at this point. You know, Absolutely. And that get that game and also the first Last of Us, but particularly the second one, are just you know phenomenal and then but you probably saw like the second it came out the troll army went for it because you know the main character is a little you know is revealed to be a lesbian and is dating a, a jewish girl like people went they lost their mind it was just like awful and the and yeah. and the creator the gamer community is not known for being no. the most tolerant you know? no no it was just it was just a mess and the, but the the creator was taking it really personally and just like lashing out at trolls on Twitter. And it just overshadowed the release of this game, which is just a phenomenal, you know, human achievement. And so, yeah, it's just, it, it, and it over, it's still, you know, overshadowed the entire release. Anyways, tangent. Um, that is something I, I sort of do miss about the 90s. And like, I think about music in the 90s in that respect, where it's like, there was no comment section to the cool magazine you picked up in the, in the, in the, you know, uh, in the mall or wherever you know what i mean like that that sort of energy of mystique and sort of you just got the work and the work spoke for itself and if you wanted to say something had to sort of be published but you know uh, everyone has an opinion and it's amplified now and that's just sort of where we're at i'm not trying to sound like the old guy who's like i miss the old days but there is (laughs) a sense of art and for purity you know that that allowed it to the art just to speak for itself well it's interesting you mentioned you know like ministry and and late 80s early 90s industrial which is Obviously, the music I, you know, that's the music I grew up with also. And just that, that era was so ridiculously, um, edgelordy, you know, and, and boundary pushing and, you know, even like Feral House and things like that. And that, that that same energy probably later ended up in 4chan, but, but, um, yeah, no, totally. And like the trad, the trad goths, certainly and the trad rivet heads or whatever are sort of like definitely some of the people that have 
led charges on that, uh, you know, 4chan, et cetera. Um, you know, yeah, but like even thinking back, even thinking back to that era, like it's hard to imagine people making that type of stuff now. No, definitely not. I feel like, you know, it's really hard to do something truly transgressive today because I do feel like there's not that much terrain left to transgress where, you know, the, the, the transgression in, in today's society is more along the lines of like wearing a MAGA hat. Like that's sort of like a pentagram in the nineties at high school. Do you know what I mean? Where people were like, Oh my God, like you'd be ostracized for it. But now everyone's got the pentagram and everyone's got the, you know, the Manson shirt. And now the only way you can like seemingly piss someone off is like wear a MAGA hat, which is just sort of the strange sort of like mutation chamber of identity politics that is like really entirely flipped its script now, which is kind of sad and kind of shitty, you know? Um, yeah, certainly not nearly as fun as it, as it used to be. Um, is that, no. is that, is no. that a dy- no. I mean, so, so as an artist working now, is that a dynamic that, cause it's obviously not the early nineties. It's not, you know, you can't shock people by yeah. releasing Psalm 69 anymore. <laughs> right. So, so is, but in playing with that, that yeah. dynamic now as an artist, how does that work? You know, has that mutated for you as you know, it's a your it, decisions? A- absolutely. Absolutely. From the, you know, the first record that we put out um, in like 2014, you know, during the Obama administration, when it was like, you know, you could really sort of have these like hard anti-systemic sort of like, you know, lashings at the at the state, which like kind of still meant something. But then slowly, you know, into the Trump administration, it became a commonplace for everyone to sort of be like, you know, fuck the system, everything's broken, blah, blah, blah. And then when that sort of becomes commonplace, it's like, all right, cool. What are we talking about now? And I still think there's space to to sort of um, create cognitive dissonance within that and sort of create some, uh, you know, some like almost traps where people get pulled in like, oh, yeah, they're talking about this. And then once you get them in, you kind of fuck with them. But that stuff is like vastly more complicated now, Um, like the sort of uh, President X character that we created, I feel like was an interesting example of that, where really it was just you know, we kind of pulled in some of the conspiracy theory nuts, but really what we were doing is kind of making fun of them in a weird way. Um, and then sort of poking fun at all sides of the government. Um, but again, I do think that sometimes that's missed where people just sort of will take it and interpret their own way. And you go, eh, it is what it is. You know? That's really interesting. Yeah. It's it, man, it's it, it. Politics have become very unfun, but I think that despite Absolutely. that, Despite that, I mean, you, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, I think that over the last two years, I think maybe it's time for, you know, the classic, like, you know, the classic edgelord approach again. I think it's it's time for shocking people again, probably, because I think that for the last two years, people have become, and the people you would least expect have become more um, shockingly and sickeningly um, lapdoggy and complacent and, and, uh, Yes, trusting, uh, and and not just trusting. I think you're seeing it in certain places. Absolutely, you know, like Lil Nas X video seemed to piss everyone off, which to me was always like that. Just sort of like you know, here's a dude giving a lap dance to a a devil that had you know, um, they were selling Nike shoes with human blood in them, and I guess the difference is now it's like it's like corporate sponsored edge lording, which is like, all right, whatever, you know, (laughs) yeah. But at the, I mean, at the same time, I, like, I worked in advertising too. I get it. You know, you right. know those guys at Wyden Kennedy, they're, they're clever. You know, they, the, <laughs> they literally took 
a slogan from a guy on death row in his last words. It was like, just do it. And like Dan Wyden was like, Hey, we should make that our, you know, a sneaker company slogan. So it's like, they've been using trans. There was a a guy on death row up in in Oregon, a a murderer who, you know, the day in the paper, they're like the final words of him, And it was like, we're just do it. And like Dan Wyden, the, the, main advertising mind behind nike was like that's perfect and then adopted it which i always found to be i didn't know that you know uh, a good example of how that brand operates you know that's like the perfect um, example of you know the nihilism at the, at the heart of you know american consumer culture exactly exactly yeah, yeah. yeah well absolutely. what i was going to point out too is is you know it's like each side of the political spectrum has had its has its own kind of like agreed upon and branded version of you know, agitation where it's like, you don't know, on the right, you guy, you, you have like the incessant, like dudes over, over, you know, dudes on the other side of their career complaining about cancel culture. And then on the left, you have, you know, all the, all, all that, all the, um, you know, all the narrative. There. So, right. Exactly. So those are, and those are both so profoundly moribund and boring and, and stale that uh, I think there's room again to maybe maybe do some shocking and button pushing in a new way. And I don't necessarily know what that way is. Oh, there's definitely there's definitely a psy it's a psyop though now. It's like it's less just sort of like, hey, let's just like make some shock rock. It's like now you have to sort of be like, you know, doing a cutting cunning psyop in the same way that the CIA has has probably made both of those sides have those those sort of sensitivities to those things where it's like, you know, uh, there's a way to kind of get in there and almost try and bring them together, which I feel like is the real sort of uh, magic trick is like, I have this theory that, um, you know, the CIA has, has separated the brains from the balls in this country and this, the red states being the balls and the blue states being the brains because there's nothing scarier than a united working class with brains and balls. Um, you know, and the idea that like, if you can sort of connect those two and realize that like, they're actually not each other's enemies and that the enemies might be something else, uh, like a bunch of billionaires who are just trying to keep everything below them fighting, um, which, you know, not to put my tinfoil hat on right now, but I, I do feel like if there was a way of, you know, creating a more united, uh, working class in, in this respect, that would be the ultimate psyop sort of, uh, edgelord, uh, magic trick, you know? No, I agree with you. I mean, I felt that way for a long time. And, and, you know, I remember even thinking about that, you know, the idea of trying to, you know, make some type of unification of Occupy and the Tea Party when those were happening. Uh, but now, I mean, particularly post-Occupy, uh, I think you're right in that, you know, so much of the psyops, and I think they are psyops, have been to divide the working class. I mean, that's like, you know, every war Every war, this is not a pro-Marxist statement, but every war since the, you know, every war since Marx and Engels has basically been fought either over communism or from a a secondary effect of communism or reaction to it. And so, you know, I think it's, you know, you can make a fairly straightforward read of history post-1900s that everything, you know, the, the story of what's going on is preventing a unified working class. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's almost like apparent to the point now, but I feel like no matter what, like, you know, people are going to either be like, uh, it's like everyone is so side driven right now. The, the, the tribalism in this country is so factioned off in such a crazy way. And the media is driving that narrative so hard on either side where it's like, you know, you're either a Fox News junkie or a CNN junkie. Take your pick, you know.
Yeah, and they're both They're both. They're both. And they're worse they're than both, they were. They're both. They're, both they're worse than ever. And yeah. they're both getting. And they're both getting their CIA memos every fucking morning, anyways. You know what I mean? So absolutely, no. That's a real thing. People don't understand that. That's actually that's not a conspiracy theory. That's actually a real thing. Like people are actually. I actually believe it's called Operation Mockingbird. I believe is what (laughs) it was called. Um, And you know, it's disclosed. You can read about it. You know, like it's modified since then, but initially it was Operation Mockingbird. I was watching Fox News the other day, as I of course do with all of my free time, with the volume turned all the way up. But, um, and, and like Sean Hannity is literally wearing a CIA pin. It's like, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> weren't you, aren't you like, weren't you just complaining about the deep state uh, last year when, when Trump was president and you were following that script? Like what's going on, man? I can't stand these guys. My, the funniest thing to me right now is how like, you know, uh, these guys like, you know, uh, Marco Rubio is like leading the charge on like, you know, alien disclosure. And then like, you know, you have like Tucker Carlson talking about like, you know, the aliens and the importance. And it's just like at this point, it just seems so fucking stupid to me. Um, yeah, they've, they've all like, got to be laughing. I've never, yeah, like I've never like wanted to like, like first off, yes, aliens are real. There's a lot of reasons why I believe in aliens. But the minute these people start talking about aliens, it's like this stuff is bullshit what they're talking about. They've got to be like doing blow and, and laughing their asses off when they're not on camera. You know, like I, I actually had an ex girlfriend. I had an ex girlfriend who worked at Fox News in the early 2000s and she was like constantly like banging dudes in like the main newsroom uh, after hours. And she said it was just like ridiculous and, and they're, they're, like they're like they just don't care. I'm sure those are the those are the Roger Ailes days. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, imagine yeah. how wild it was over there. It was probably a big fuck fest. There there is a part of me though that like just really wants to see like you know uh Marco Rubio like make first contact with the alien sort of galactic federation where he like goes to shake someone the alien's hand and the alien just like fries him like a mozzarella <laughs> stick. Like there's parts yes. of me that would just love to see that, but I don't think My favorite of all of those guys, I have to say, is Matt Gates. I don't know if you followed the Matt Gates saga. Yes. The, yes. The, yeah. the, as I mean, one look at that guy's face and he's guilty. Like the guy's <laughs> a creature. <laughs> but even before that, my my, my my favorite Matt Gates moment, this is as they refer to it on uh, Know Your Meme, the Matt Gates Nestor reveal. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I've not. Oh my I've God. Not seen that. Okay. So. <laughs> So this must have been like a year. It was during, it was post George Floyd. They were having a hearing on, you know, the Senate floor, you know, wherever, wherever they were. And, um, you know, somebody was standing up talking about how, you know, no one can understand what this is like, you know, if you're a person of color and you have children, you don't know, you know, if they're going to come home, you know, every day and things like this. And so Matt Gates stands up and says, how could you, how could you insinuate that we don't know what it's like to have a child of color? I myself have a child of color. And everyone just like, there's like, like pin drops in the room and everyone looks at him and it's like, what are you talking about? So then it turns out that Matt Gates, a single 38 year old man adopted a kid named Nestor from, I think, uh, Cuba or somewhere in South America uh, and brought him as a 17-year-old, I think, well, I think originally as a 14-year-old, he was 17 at the time, brought this boy to live with him, Matt Gates, in Florida, a single 38-year-old man. Uh, and then he proceeded to post, as proof, post a picture on Twitter of both of them, like, in polos with, like, aviator sunglasses on. 
Um, I mean, he was probably waiting. He did that to, for this exact moment. You know what I mean? He was just waiting for the day to play that card. You know what I mean? Was, He's going to run for president. Who knows? That guy's, He's going to run for president next year or, or not. I mean, excuse I mean, me. The, next the, election. The, the bar has been lowered. The bar has been lowered very, very far. I don't think the office of presidency will ever be the same in this country, oh. which is, you know, probably not a bad thing. Um, uh, because I feel like I don't, I think we're probably past the part where we need a, a you know, an alpha world leader to sort of decide what we're going to do at this point. Um, I think America is sort of a, a dying star. Um, I do love America. Yeah, I, I, I love the land. I love the people. I love, you know, all these things, but fuck the state. People, I think, oftentimes forget that you can sort of like, you know, love the land, the people, the energy, the the ideas and the creativity and the ingenuity uh, of a place as opposed to being like the government, like fuck the government, right, but like right. love America. Well, and fuck uh, and the empire was- also, you know, and I think yeah. like particularly traveling around the world, I'm sure you've had the same experience. When you talk to people around the world, you know, they all love American culture. And American people, yeah. but they hate the American government because they don't want to die. You know, and I, I think that yeah. I think that that's something that Americans need to be more aware of. But I agree with you about president. No. I mean, it could become a ceremonial role, like the Queen or something like that. You know, that's all nobody, it is. It's nobody a, actually it's a, believes it's a symbolic that. position. Yeah. No, and Frank Zappa called it the entertainment division of the military industrial complex. <laughs> yeah, that's which right. I think was pretty spot on. Yeah, you know? he had a few, um, and I think that ultimately. Yeah, totally. And I think that ultimately, you know, we've kind of just proved to ourselves that it's not something that is, you know, you know, we've got a, a geriatric in there now. We had a reality TV star before that. And it's like, you know, at this point, it's just become this sort of strange reality show of, of just really poorly written infotainment. You know what I mean? It's just not it's just not even good anymore. It's just like, all right, we've we've it's ran its course. Well, uh, that, we got to figure something. That's out. what's so weird. And, you know, you're still, you know, LA adjacent. So I, I think that, uh, um, that's, that's what's so weird to me about seeing people who are like all on board for Biden Harris. It's like intelligent people who are like, yeah, like whatever they say, like they're going to save us. Yeah. I also think it's just like, that's the sort of like strange paralysis and myopia that like we came out of the, the, the Trump administration with where we were just like, like a lot of people were just so horrified by that, that they were like anything. Well, and then we can go back to our sort of centrist pacification. Um, and it is that it's centrist. It's not, there's no left in this country. We have, we have a corporate right and a corporate center and we're back to corporate center, which at least people can get back on with their lives and, and sort of at least think that like everything is going to be okay. Cause we sort of have this like visionless future now, um, which is a strange <laughs> phenomenon. That's a good, um, we're like, no one has, yeah, no one has any vision of the future. The people are, who are providing vision now are like, you know, these sort of, uh, cosmic kind of hucksters, like, uh, like uh elon musk you know what i mean like yeah oh, don't worry we're gonna go to mars or like oh is that our solution we're like we basically turn like everyone dies except for billionaires who become refugees of our planet which is like that's that's crazy um it is yeah. and then the idea that like you know mo- like i just i just don't see elon musk being the guy that brings us to mars i just fucking hope not that's just so strange it'll be um, Jesus then you know <laughs> Yeah, it'll probably be Bezos or him and like the idea that like, you know, you get there and it's like already like, you know, uh, shopping facilities on there and, and like, you know, it's just it's just so tragic, you know, like I think that's why it's easy. It's easier for people to think of the end of the world than it is the end of our system. Do you know what I mean? Like we have so no other options 
Um, all we've been is fed is these sort of like, you know, entertainment narratives of, of dystopia and apocalypse. Like there hasn't been any like other like utopian ideas that like, well, maybe we'll try this. So it's like, we all just sort of envision just total decimation now, which is pretty fucked up. Um, but I feel like that's sort of where people are at and that's why they're sort of, you know, there's that sense of paralysis, I suppose, where everyone's just sort of like, you know, exhausted and sort of just like at this point, they're like, well, at least we can coast with a sort of like four years of this Biden guy, which is not a great way to be approaching anything. Yeah. It's weird that particularly, I mean, I've been on that same page for a long time. I think that, um, it's weird that when people got the chance to do the apocalypse, I mean, we kind of did it. I remember, but it wasn't that, it wasn't that, um, impressive. I remember something Grant, and I, I know you know Grant as well. Something Grant said to me like a long time ago, uh, I think like at the Comic-Con, this must've been like 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago. Um, we, we were talking about the apocalypse and he said that, you know, he said something like, like even the apocalypse is going to be disappointing. You know, like, like people, like people Absolutely. are so fundamental, so fundamentally lazy. Like they're, we're even going to half-ass the apocalypse. And it's totally true. Absolutely. Like that's basically what he, just, I mean, he nailed that one, you know, we're sort of in, I call it like boring apocalypse, you know, it's just a slow, you know, the universe started in a bang and ends in a whimper. You know what I mean? Like that's right. the whole theory. It just sort of slowly whimpers out, which is, it ends in, it sucks. ends in Postmates and, you know, getting yes, your, exactly. your food delivered to you. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, which is like totally what's going to happen with aliens. Even when they arrive, we're going to be like, so why are you here? And they're going to be like, we love Panda Express or something. We're gonna be like, wait, what? Like, this is why aliens are here. It's gonna be something so stupid and mundane. We're right. gonna be like, all right, forget it. That'll be the like, first. We're thing like, they must Mars. be so smart. Yeah. That'll be the first yeah, thing. Like, Mars. Panda, Panda Express. So smart. Be Panda yeah. Express totally. on, on, on Mars. <laughs> well, so you said something interesting uh, earlier. Uh, one of the things, one of the things you said was just about connecting brains and balls. And then you also talked about political tribalism and how that's so easy to tweak, which I think, I think like tweaking the tribalism by throwing in ideas associated with the other tribe, but wrapping them in acceptable ideas is a really good way to rattle people. And one, one example of that is, you know, obviously the the fact that you have uh, become a gunstagrammer, you know, which I think is, is definitely worth talking about from a lot of different angles. Right. So I think we were talking and this, was, and this was something that was actually very like it was well the intention behind it and i'm gonna let you finish was exactly this that, that you're going to talk about so continue well it was I, total I think, cognitive dissonance okay well yeah that's kind of where i was going with it but i remember just talking the the last thing i was going to say there is i think we were talking on uh, on on instagram and and you know you were saying you were you were kind of hesitant to come out as a gun guy you know which which yeah, i've, you know, I've actually never my gun closet right which I, I haven't really like i mean i, I mentioned it I talk about it in courses and things like that but i don't like post that i don't i don't go full gun bunny on instagram because i just like i'm such a nerdy dude i don't want to seem like you know like uh you know i don't know if i can pull it off i don't know if i can quite rock the look you do it pretty it, well though, it's, so. it's it's a it's a it's a fine line to walk do you know what i mean because like Obviously, the fetishizing of guns is not something that people, most reasonable people, would look up as a, as a normal or okay behavior. Um, but I feel like I've done enough of the other side of sort of like, you know, transgressive, like hyper lefty stuff in my day that, like, it's okay to be like, also, look, like, I do also like guns. And then people just start, crack, you know, scratching their heads because, you know, I have like a ton of these sort of like, you know, military bros that are fans of my music 
Because at the end of the day, I don't want to just talk and reinforce to like, you know, uh, a niche LA audience that like is already like super like on some next level shit like I might be. Like, I want to talk to middle America, get them in a comfortable place with sort of Mm. some familiarity, like, oh, the guns, the muscles, the mustache. And then when I have them uh, where I want them, then then start opening their minds. You know what I mean? It's the whole frog in, in you know, lukewarm luke water and then you heat them up. Because if I'm going to be using this sort of like, you know, guerrilla ontology tactics, you need you need a, to, to sort of get their guards down. Do you know what I mean? So that way you're not some, you know, leftist, you know, liberal cuck snowflake to them. You're <laughs> like, wait, they go, wait. So like, you know, there's a, a sense of... Um, you know, familiarity that they get comfortable with, I suppose. Oh, that's really clever. And I hadn't thought about it from that angle at all, at all. I, I kind of, um, you know, I only think about it from the angle of, of, of uh, forgive me, but, you know, triggering, you know, triggering people. But actually, but actually, I'm not interested because I don't post about it at all. I'm not, I'm actually, I'm actually legitimately, um, you know, interested in that pursuit. I don't turn it into like a, like it's not like an actual yeah. top thing for me. But what the way that yeah, you, I'm not like I'm not like my gun is lubricated, my AR-15 is lubricated with liberal tears, like that type of bullshit triggering. Right, like, right, cool. right. Um, which you know, there's a lot of people that you know. The also, I I did also want to go a little bit more um, deep cover into infiltrating the the two way community because there's a tremendous amount of information to pull out of that and what's wrong with this country. Um, also in what's right with this country. So there's there's a lot that I've learned in there, a lot that I've learned while going sort of deep cover into there, um, which was part of my joke about wearing so much khaki this summer. I was like, khaki is my sort of, is the gateway drug to sort of corporate America and I'm infiltrating. Do you know what I mean? Like I just wore so much beige this summer that everyone was hyper confused. Um, (laughs) granted I was living in the desert, but also it sort of allowed me to sort of like you know, mix in with a little bit more of the good old boys and then sort of, you know, use that sort of infiltration to sort of, like I said, get in there and sort of use some guerrilla ontology and then really see what people are, what's making the sides tick. You know what I mean? Because you can talk in your echo chamber all day long and really it's just incredibly masturbatory. So I really wanted to get out of there. And, you know, I do have a genuine for for the second amendment and, you know, uh, as I, I believe I am at my core a patriot, even though I've been called anti-American most of my life, which is just an incredible fascist technique, because um, there's no such thing as being anti-American. Um, or maybe there is. I don't know. It just seems silly to oh, me. There definitely um, is, but it's but, not that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, well, you mentioned you mentioned discovering things that are um, uh, things that are wrong with America, things that are right with America. And also what makes the other side tick. And I just wanted to really wanted to was curious, you know, your big thoughts on that, what you wanted to share. What yeah. I've taken a lot away from it. And, you know, at the core, I think there's a lot of fear in the two way community. We'll start with the bad things and then go into some of the good things. I think there's an incredible amount of fear um, embedded into the sort of uh, culture coding of the second amendment, this idea that, you know, people want to take your arms, the fact that law and order is going to fall apart, the idea that, you know, this, is the only way you're going to be able to protect yourself. I also think there's a lot of racism in there that I've noticed, um, a lot of intolerance, a lot of um, uh, anti anti LGBT rhetoric that uh, you know uh, is just sort of like you can tell is just Fox News pumped agenda of like here's what they want to do with your country. Do you know what I mean? Um, right. So there's a tremendous amount of fear in there. 
Well, there's um, always that they're going to bring your guns and then there's going to be riots. And, you know, there's yes. but such like an yes. undercurrent of, of racism to that. It's yes. unignorable. Yes, which the irony is nothing, nothing sells uh, firearms better than a Democratic president. So, you know, I think a lot of that stuff is is obviously, uh, you know, they know what they're doing. They know how to sort of drive, you know, their 17 month record breaking sale of, of background checks and gun sales. Uh, in the country this year. It's like there's more people buying guns than ever. And I think that's because they can drive that rhetoric so hard uh, when the idea is that they are actually trying to pass some of it. Who knows if it'll get it through. I don't think they'll ever take away the Second Amendment in this country, so I don't worry about it too much. Uh, they might neuter your stuff a little bit like in California, but you know you can always be non-compliant like me. Out of bang. So that's the, that's the bad stuff, obviously, um, which is somewhat apparent. Um, but then at the core, I think there's some a lot of uh, actual community and camaraderie and a lot of love on the good side where I think there's like sort of like, like my thoughts on guns are if you spend money on guns, and this is a hard one to explain, but like those guns in a hundred years from now are like going to still be guns in the way that they're made and the craftsmanship and the sort of industry. You know, it's all sort of like this, um, like American made. And it's like, we're done with tremendous quality. Every time I buy an iPhone, I have a drawer full of old iPhones yeah. that will never work again. I have a closet full of guns that will forever be guns. There's something to be said about that level of lack of planned obsolescence in that industry that I think is something really cool. I also think that, um, you know, I've been in ranges and in communities where so many differences are set aside oftentimes by a camaraderie for, you know, like if you like guns, you're good by me. It doesn't matter if you're black or you're white. Or anything. Yeah, that's a, that's so 100% many, real. That's 100% real. I've seen people come together that it like couldn't be, you know, just from further walks of life and kind of bond over, you know, the gun, which is so strange. Yeah, I've um, seen like even up at Angeles Crest, I've seen like, you know, like trans people and like, you know, like quote totally, unquote boys getting along, you know, talking about guns. So yeah. Yeah. And it's actually one of the few places where those two things might actually intersect. Um, you know, like I said, there's obviously a dark side of it, but there is a, a strangely light side of it, um, where, you know, there's sort of their bond over a distrust for the government or something can actually sort of, uh, transcend all their differences. So, you know, it's been interesting. Um, and, you know, like I said, I wanted to kind of get in there and kind of pull some data off it, but also I did also want to get free stuff from gun companies. Um, I can't deny that you know, oh, nice. being, being a gunstagrammer, you get a lot of free stuff. You know? yeah, right. You're riding that grand thumb train. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a little wake behind them that you can kind of, you know, pull some swag off. Of. Nice. So were you always, were you always interested in, in, in that, or did you kind of consciously go into it at a certain point? Um, well, having an uncle who had a lot of firearms as a kid and I was just sort of liked guns and shooting them. Um, I, I was sort of more of a casual shooter. I shot skeet a lot, um, uh, sort of a hobby of mine, but then when it really came into more gunsmithing and building them, um, I was something that like, that's when my, my passion for it really sort of like, cause I just going back to the sort of, you know, your theories on men being sort of like weirdly you know, technical, uh, and that, that sort of almost fetish for technicality and stuff like that. I think that, you know, I just love building any type of precision sort of instrument, being able to tune it. And it's a great way to fill time. And like, for me, I'm not one of those people that kind of sit around and do nothing when I have free time. I like to fill my time. Um, and then I guess, you know, in the process of having a lot more free time during the pandemic, just built a lot of guns. Right? Nice. 
um, yeah, I, I definitely enjoy that quite a lot also. Um, it, interesting. I mean, I, I, uh, I got very, for whatever reason, I got very, very, I go into real obsessive tunnels about things and I'd always been kind of into it, but I got very focused on it maybe three years ago, something like that and got just, you know, wanted to learn everything. And the biggest, I, I had all the experiences you did too. I also in learning, I think particularly from the, the second amendment community, I think the biggest thing was learning the other side. And this was, you know, I can't understate how important this is learning the other side of the anti-government narrative. Cause if you just get the left sides yes. version of why they're pissed, yes. it's only half of the story yeah. because the whole second yeah. half of the story is on the other side, which includes things like, um, you know, Waco and Ruby Ridge and, and, you yes. know, you, I mean, it's like, absolutely. Basically and, what happened in the nineties when they were like, we've yeah. the, the U S a portion of the U S population was at war with the government, which yeah. has been sort of quietly put to sleep. It really has. It's been, it's been, but, but now they have the guy responsible for Waco, you know, is, you know, they're pushing as the head of the ATF. So the, the history yeah, is su- super fucked up. Yeah, it really is. And people don't remember that. And, and oddly enough, and, and if they remember it, they remember the official government's, um, the official government narrative about it, which was a lie. And so, and I definitely noticed that the fight over, you know, first of all, it's ridiculous how much people make fun of uh, Second Amendment people, but um, because how, because of, you, you get an understanding of like how, it's not just critical to the way the country functions, but it's like, it, it's there for a reason. You know, it really is. Yes. And you, you know, the fight over Absolutely. the second amendment, you can just track back archeologically, you know, is, you know, one-to-one correlated with the fight over our individual freedom at all. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's that also the first amendment, but you know, which is why you, you mentioned the thing about disconnecting brains from balls. The thing that has driven me crazy for so long is seeing neither side of the political fight wants all of our rights intact. You know, you have the, the yeah. left wants the first amendment taken away and the, or, you know, excuse me. I mean, <laughs> left now wants the first and second yeah. amendment yeah. taken away, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's like, yeah. but you know, you don't have at neither side of the political fence is wants rights. Yeah. And the reality is one is there to protect the other, you know, yes. the second amendment yes. is there to protect the first amendment. And that's what the founding fathers wanted. And, you know, the idea that somehow like, you know, disarming our population would make it safer is just insane to me. I mean, uh, again, like kind of, like you said, pulling yourself out of the echo chamber by going and learning more about, you know, some of the 2A community has been hugely enlightening. Um, and, you know, I, I, aside from a lot of the paranoia that is there, I think that there is a tremendous amount of truth that's there as well. And I think that, you know, as a person who is sort of obsessed with their own sort of autonomy, the idea that, Listen, if the state has these guns, then you should have them too. It's as simple as that. Do you know what I mean? Like it really is. I would have one, you know, I like to I like to be my own sort of little sovereign micro nation. And if they have their defense department, you should have yours. You know, the I, idea I that like you're gonna rely on you them more. to do that for you is insane. You I know? couldn't like, agree with you more. And I base I'm like on the that. Same page. I'm on the same page. And that, that's what people don't yeah. really don't understand about the AR-15 argument either, which is people say give this ridiculous argument that it's like well the founding fathers couldn't have foreseen these weapons of war that don't belong on our streets like well first of all it's a 22 rifle you know it's like it is not it's not a machine gun okay it's a semi-automatic sporting rifle that is you know not nearly as frightening as you think 
Um, but the it's other the, thing, it's that, the Honda Civic of guns, you know, it's, <laughs> it it's really the Honda is. Civic of guns. You can put any part on it. It's sort of modular. People put like, you know, all these different parts on theirs and you're like, you know, that's all it is. It's a little it bit really of a customized, is. you know, sort of all purpose gun. You know? Absolutely. And the other thing that people don't realize is like, well, why, why does the, the second amendment says a well-regulated militia and things like this. The point of the second amendment is that there should be parity of force, parity, not parody, but parity of force yeah. between the the civilian population and the military the the weapon that yeah. civilian should have should be the same standard issue weapon that the same military weapon. gets which is the M4 exactly. so that has to be it not exactly. only and that's it, it. Not, when people has when to people be say well why would you need actually. an M4 <laughs> but, right to defend yourself but, you know like after yeah. we went went through the last year it's like you know well answer me that now and I think that it's a, so in a sense, it's like not only does the Second Amendment cover the AR-15, it's for the AR-15 currently right now, you know, Absolutely. It, until it becomes Absolutely. something else. Yeah. And it won't. And I also think time. that, you know, the idea that somehow the AR-15 is like the demon of like gun violence. If you actually look at the statistics of gun violence, you know, there's something like 35, 36,000 gun deaths a year in this country, which is almost exact to the same amount of uh, car accident deaths in this country, which, follow me on this one, um, at the end of the day, if you look at how many accidents happen from speeding, which is like vast, it's like, uh, you know, something like 80% of car accidents happen because of speeding, but like 1% of those those deaths happen from school shootings, but yet we want to ban the AR-15. So how come cars are allowed to go above 60 miles an hour? Do you need a car that goes over 60 miles an hour? No, you don't. But why do you? Because you can, and it's America. So you should still be able to have a gun that shoots more than, you know, 10 round capacity. It's like, right. it just seems insane to me. There's you know? a lot like of 1% arguments. of gun violence is mass shooting. Is that too much? Probably. Well, the yeah, other thing about mass, mass shooting, shooting, if you look at the mass shooting data, 97% of it is done with handguns. It's just that it's not the AR-15. Yeah, now, sure. that said, the ones that have been done with AR-15s, for instance, Sandy Hook. I don't know how anyone with uh, a soul can look at Sandy Hook and not just be like shattered to their core if they really it's, consider yeah, it's, it. It's, it's, it's absolutely horrific. Yeah. But also 60% of that number of 35,000 is suicide. That, and that's which the other is something thing that, that no one talks about. about. Yeah. And that's, that's suicide. Because 60% because, of that 35,000 is suicide. Yep. And no one's shooting themselves with an AR-15. That, yeah. That's talking more about the sensibilities of our society right now that right. requires a deeper sort of uh, closer look of, of our mental health scenario. The other thing about that is overwhelmingly the, the only people like women don't don't shoot themselves. You know, women commit suicide. You know, we're getting, getting dark here. Women commit suicide usually with, um, you know, they put their head in the oven or they leave the car on, things like this, or they take an overdose. And um, men, 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 men commit suicide violently. Women don't. Right. Um, and so why aren't we talking about, you know, for instance, the suicide rate among middle-aged white men in this country is higher than any other group. Why aren't we talking about that? That's not, that's not a marketable narrative right now. Yeah. So I think that, doesn't, that, 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 that doesn't sell sneakers. Yeah. The gun control thing for me is, is after learning more about it, and I didn't always know a lot about it, but after I think having, you know, pretty much the same experience of you going into the community and just learning and educating myself on it, I, the, the gun control thing is a complete non-starter for me. 
You can't get the idea that people are running around with machine guns, gunning everyone down just isn't true, right? You can't get in this country. You haven't, you haven't been able to the thirties or or whatever. I don't think people really fully know the the definition of a machine gun or the idea that an assault weapon is just sort of a manufactured sort of a, you know, word that people sort of came up to demonize the weapon. But the idea that an AR-15 for the listeners who don't know, it's, the gun shoots one round downrange at a time every time you pull a trigger, like any other semi-automatic weapon. It's not a same fully a automatic pistol. weapon. Yeah, same as a pistol. Um, the idea that it's any less or more lethal than you know a, a Glock or any other, you know, even a, a revolver for that point is not is not true. Um, uh, the bullet is a bullet. You know, it's not it's not like a video game where you just hold down the trigger and it just auto fires. Mm-hmm. That's something that is impossible to get on the streets uh, unless you are uh, an active military or SWAT or something like that, which or it, I think it's hard for them even. Or in a cartel. Or in a cartel. Which, exactly. like, which is another reason why people yeah, shouldn't be you're running guns. Yeah, totally. And I, I think the idea that, you know, the gun, the gun genie is out of the bottle in this country and it doesn't get put back in. Listen, if we were completely, you know, if guns didn't exist, I wouldn't, you wouldn't be like, hey, we don't need them. You know, if we had a military that carried whistles and a set of keys because that's what the world required because there was no guns, then fine. But unfortunately, that's not the universe that we live in. And like I said, you're not putting the gun back in the bottle or the genie back in the bottle here. There's a tremendous amount of high powered firearms that exist out there. And I would rather be someone who has one than doesn't have one. And I would I would like to know how to use. Use it. I think it's a, a utility that I like teaching all my friends how to become proficient and very safe and sort of respect firearms because in the same way that I think you should probably know how to drive stick. What if you have to do at one point? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you probably never have to use your hand. Or your yeah, I don't know life, how to drive stick. But <laughs> well, you should learn because you never yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, well, I don't even yeah. have a car, you know, so, but because uh, I've, I've yeah. forgotten. I, I just lived, I lived in Italy for quite some time and like, I don't even think uh-huh. I have automatic cars over there. So. Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that really um, made me reconsider the, the gun argument also was living in England for a year. And yes. I realized a couple things, all the stereotypes that Europeans have about Americans, they're way worse at. You know, like just the trashiness yeah. of the culture, like how rude people are. Let's talk about let's talk about racism for one. I think uh, that everyone thinks, oh, America is so racist. I think Europe is vastly more racist than America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lived in Europe for 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 five years. I did my university there and studied political science, and I saw more racism in in Europe than I've ever seen in this country. Which, you know, I think that, you know, you know, but they don't talk about Europe being racist, which is interesting to me. <laughs> Well, I uh, one one thing that living over there made me appreciate is like how nice Americans are. Americans are really, yes. really nice and yeah. polite, like amazingly so. Like we line up, we're not abrasive yes. to each other by and large, you know. And one of the things I realized when I was, and you know, I would go out. May, I mean, it was probably the same in Italy, right? But you know, I would go out in London on a Friday, Saturday night, and I'd be coming home and there'd just be pools of blood on the ground, like in the tube and things like that. And what I realized was people fight recreationally there. They do it for fun. It's like, because I think they're not going to get that politeness. Well, the, an armed society is a polite society as that sort of maxim goes where, you know, if you're in Texas, you're not trying to, you know, road rage on people and fight anyone because you're like, everyone's probably got a gun and I don't want to get shot. So there is a weird sort of uh, truth to that. Um, and I also, you know, when you sometimes see a, a video on TikTok of like, you know, some dude beating up a cop and, 
in you know uh the east side of london or something and you're like that would never like it's like just a good old-fashioned innocent fist fight or something which it feels crazy to me but right. you know there's something also kind of nice about that knowing that you could still get in a scuffle and not be shot so you know i'm not sure one's <laughs> better than the other but i do think that america just sort of is america and it's so embedded in our dna i think you know, the idea that a country that was founded in the bloodshed of a, gu- of, a, of a gunfight, I believe, in somewhere in Concord, Massachusetts, that sort of initiated the shot heard around the world, which mm. sort of said, oh, cool. Now, you know, which, which fought we fought our independence for. And I think that, like, the idea that the country was literally founded on a gunshot. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, so you're not you're yeah. not separating that DNA from this country. Yeah, I mean, it's like there's a few. One of the things I about think, Americans is we really am. We we embed our ideology in devices and i think that you know the three big american american devices are you know the electric guitar the car and the and the gun the ar-15 or you know previous guns right you know like the colt peacemaker things like this the 1911 right and and you know it's like that those those items Essentially, it's like you touch them and you can see the eagle, the the eagle flying in the background. You know, like oh, it's like you, you're almost and, immediately and, and, feel America by picking something like that up. And yeah, that's a good and thing. I do think that you know, I think it's a good thing, and I think it's it just also is just the thing. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not that it should be changed in that respect. You know, there's a lot of things I do think should be changed. But until, like I said, that, you know, our police don't carry guns or that our, our, our you know, we got rid of, we disarmed the military, which is not going to happen. Um, yeah. I, I think that we should have what the state has, you know. Yeah, we I'm don't want to be, that, we know? don't want to be simple. defenseless. We don't, we, we don't want to be just waiting to be victimized yeah. by the military. Nobody does. I mean, I think we've also, Anywhere. we've already seen, we've already seen, especially during the pandemic, that like the further you are outside of the power structures, the more likely you are to die. Do you know what I mean? I think that like, you yeah. know, in a weird way, a gun levels a playing field and creates a certain sense of equality. And I, I've always tried to thought how to articulate this, and I don't think I know how to yet, but there is a certain sense of equality that the gun represents. The gun represents a sort of leveling of the playing field because the bullet can just be, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or a different color or whatever, the bullet would still do the same thing to anyone. Um, and I know that's a fucked up way to look at it, but it's sort of strangely true. I think no, that's that's it exactly. I think the other side of that too is is it does level it levels the playing field of force because everyone has a different body. You know, some people are like you know, like you or I, like tall, you know, like tall dudes who can probably fight and things like this. But like you look, you know, you know, a gun. You could be in a wheelchair. You could be you know, a frail woman, you could be elderly. It doesn't matter. All of a sudden force, it's a, it's a force leveler. It's not even a force multiplier, the force leveler. And that's one of the, the that's one of the arguments about um, full capacity magazines, standard capacity magazines. It's like, why would anyone need 30 rounds in an AR? It's like, well, maybe you're a woman in a wheelchair or maybe you're just freaked out as hell because seven dudes just came into your house and you're missing. Yeah, you know, it's like I don't yeah, know if you're thirty rounds in general. Of, uh, yeah, I can shoot you know, thirty rounds in like half a second. Do you oh, know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah. thirty rounds is not that much. It's not. It's like you know, at the end of the day, well, not literally. You know, you know I've never been. I, I've never been. Thing, but yeah, yeah, I've never been in a gunfight. Thank God. But I would imagine that most of a gunfight is spent shooting suppressive fire 
as opposed to sort of, you know, putting a, a shot on target because you're going to be so scared that you're just going to be sort of hiding behind something, just unloading to sort of keep the other people's position pinned back. So right. just out of basic, and you're going to be you know, jittering, logic terrified. And yeah. one of the most, the most valuable training experience I ever had um, with firearms, I did a lot of training was, you know, for a long time, I thought like, I'm really like, I'm a, yeah, I'm like hitting things with a Glock at like 260 meters, things like this. It's like, wow, I'm like a badass, you know, but, but then, and that's on paper, like on the range or at, you know, out, out, outdoors, things like that. But um, the most valuable training experience I ever had was with sim munitions, which is kind of like paintballs uh, for those people yeah. who don't know about it. And it's was simulating real life situations. Like what would you do if there was an active shooter, things like that. And I realized that under adrenaline, and this isn't even in a real situation. It's like somebody just shows yeah. up with a sim munitions gun. I couldn't hit something five feet in front of me. Because the adrenaline dump is a yeah. real I mean, thing. Like all your fine motor skills are I out. Mean, even, you can have someone even at a, like taking someone to shoot for the first time because there's obviously an incredible amount of adrenaline for squeezing a Glock and from like, oh my God, it's about to go bang and all this sort of anticipation and flinch. You can put a target five yards in front of someone who's never shot a gun and they'll miss the target at five yards yeah. out of range just because it's such an intense experience of shooting a gun for the first time, which is always interesting. It blows people's minds of like how hard it is to shoot handguns. Um, you know, mm. it, it's an incredible amount of challenge that, that, that requires tons of training. And yeah, yeah with all that explosion going off in like your that, hand. You know, it's like everything yeah, it's your brain is wired to not do that. <laughs> yeah. Which is another thing that maybe we could segue into this where there's something I find incredibly meditative about shooting and in, 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 in the sort of fact that it makes you so present because it is intense, because there's no room to be thinking about something else because it, it's a dangerous thing to do. So it requires an intense amount of focus that makes you so present minded and now that I find like when I leave the gun range, I am like as docile as a Hindu cow. I'm like super Zen and focused and it feels very um, cathartic and sort of meditative that, you know, people call that gun therapy, which is, it's a thing. And I know that oh, sounds yeah. crazy to some people no, who it's don't shoot, real. but I find that. Uh, uh. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, let me ask you about that. I think that is a good segue. Um, Cause I was wanting to ask you about, we even talked about magic, but um, you know, going into the, like going going into any experience as a magical thinker is different, right? So my my question is kind mm -hmm. of, you know, what what you know, going into the the I don't know what you want to call it, the gun experience uh, it, as a magician, you know, what that was, how that was different, and I'll, I'll share just briefly my own experience, which is that I found that you mentioned earlier that you like to be autonomous and you like to be your own kind of sovereign nation, which I couldn't agree with you yes. more. I'm exactly the same way. And I felt that there was something about taking that journey and going from somebody who exactly like you just said, like, you know, firing a gun for the first time, like, woo, what is this, you know, to being competent yeah. and confident at uh, yeah. more and more complex platforms. There was something so deeply, not just maturing about that, because also it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're holding life or death in your hands. You have to be, and there's yeah. no mistakes. There's no takebacks. Yeah, you have to be. Yeah. There's no wiggle room. There's no bullshitting. You have to be on point 100 percent of the time, or it's 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 over. And I think that the um, um, that, but also the fact, and I think this is this is why there's such a fight over the Second Amendment. Going from feeling defenseless in the world to 
the idea that anything would be a threat to me just not even existing in my mind anymore and being autonomous in that way, mm-hmm. that yeah. is fundamentally empowering and fundamentally transformative in such a real way that um, absolutely you know that once you do that, it's like in the same way that running up starting a business was for me. I mean, once you do that, it's like who can control you? Nobody, right? Maybe yeah. what else can you do for yourself? Maybe you don't need the government to do for you. And I don't necessarily mean that in like totally. right wing way. I mean yeah. that in in an anarchist way. You know, maybe I can be. Yeah. Maybe I don't need other people to be dependent on. Yeah, maybe maybe self reliance is an actual thing, and not just you know a little pamphlet by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there is a tremendous amount of of autonomy that once you become proficient with the firearm and even the sense of like, I go like camping in crazy places sometimes like in old mines and like abandoned areas of like, you know, BLM land um, out here in California where you're allowed to yes, carry firearms. Your Bureau like of land management. Right. Just for those who yes, don't, yes, for people who don't know. Acronym, yeah. 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 Um, and so it's really interesting because when you go camping out there, and it's 30 miles into nowhere off, you know, crazy abandoned roads. And you have to, you know, have a, a, a nice sort of overlanding vehicle to get there. Uh, there's no cell phone service for, for, you know, almost 30 miles. And there's a sense of like, when you're out there, it could be a horror movie. Do you know what I mean? A mountain lion, whatever. If anything happens, you're kind of fucked. But there's something about carrying a sidearm on you that you kind of feel completely proficient and safe and sort of just like your own autonomous sort of thing out there that, you know, even a couple of times I heard some mountain lions and all I did was pull my Glock out and go bing, bing, bing. And I'm like, I think we're good. You know, like (laughs) there's a sense of just feeling safe and sort of avoiding the potential horror movie scenarios that could happen in life when you just got your gun on you. And, you know, to me, I don't carry, I'm not an everyday carry guy. Um, I'm not a concealed carry guy, but when I'm camping out in the middle of nowhere, I like to have a sidearm. There's a great Jeff Cooper uh, quote, you know, the great gun gun writer. I mean, there's a great Jeff Cooper quote about that, um, kind of making fun of the standard anti-gun arguments where he says, you know, people come up to me and they say, oh, why do you why do you have to have a gun? What are you scared of? And I say right back to them, nothing. I have a gun. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You know. Yeah, again, it's like, and I'm sure this conversation will, will sort of be foreign to a lot of listeners and sort of strange, and maybe they still think we're gun nuts or something like that. But I think it's important to also let people know that, like, you, you don't have to be a violent person to enjoy guns. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a violent no. person. I'm a non-violent use person. My gun. I have no, yeah, I have no I, desire I, I like, to I shoot put, my I, gun I, I, When I see flies in the house, I try to, like, put them in and cut them with them out, you know? It's like, yeah. <laughs> so, and, but and I, think I think a lot of people yeah. misconstrue and sort of just to backtrack yeah backtrack to what you were saying about sort of magical observation this one might be a, a bit of a reach but i think one of the things i've noticed within guns and the people who might be more violent and there's certainly a lot of people who own guns and you can tell want to get to use their guns against people like mm-hmm. they're just waiting for someone to break <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah there's that sort of remember that weird l song there was that weird l song trigger happy where he's just like i'm just praying for someone to break in tonight you know <laughs> it's true though there's some there's people, people like, like that, that. i guess in sort of my sort of uh you know strange sort of psych psycho magical sort of inspection of that was sort of a, a drawn towards the sort of sexual nature of guns and how i think that you know maybe sort of more incel energy or or people that, you know, um, it's like Wilhelm Reich said, fascism 
is uh, like the d- the dogma of sexual cripples or something like that, which is obviously mm. not the best way to put it, but that was Wilhelm Reich, not me. Um, and I think that there's something about like people who who maybe have sort of maybe kind of retired or very uh, disassociated from their sexual experience that use guns to fill that nature. Um, and, and this is obviously, like I said, a reach, but you know, obviously when you think of that movie, like Zardoz or like the gun is good, or like, you know, the gun is sort of the penis to them. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like the people who do want to use their guns are maybe people that are very disconnected from themselves sexually or very repressed sexually. Uh, and again, like I said, this is probably a reach, but that was sort of my, uh, you know, my observation more psychomagically upon it. You know, I don't think I don't think it's too much of a reach around. Uh, no, I think I think too much uh, reach around. Exactly. <laughs> no, no, I think no. They're, they're, you're definitely right. You know, and it's and it's like, um, and there's not necessarily anything bad with that either. It's like you know, you gotta gotta let let old dudes be old dudes. You know, but at the same sure. time, um, but I, I would say you know, on the other side of that, I think there's also something extremely psychosexual about people who are just extreme anti-gun people, or who are like you know yes. anything. There's a certain you know, I, I get little Robert Anton Wilson about this. I think there's very much a certain mentality on particularly like the most like hardcore DNC people. Um, I don't even want to say extreme yes. left because everyone says the extreme left. It's not the extreme left. When I think of like the left, quote unquote, which the quote unquote extreme left, which for America, which for Europe would just be center, you know, it's like, you know, I yeah, think exactly. people exactly. who are actually Marxists or anarchists, yes. you know, they're ideological, yes. they're principled, they have a stance, which even if I don't agree with, I respect because yes. they have their thing that they're working. Yes. Right. Yes. But what I don't the, the, really the, the DNC left is that neoliberal corporate. Yeah. Utopia. Just like I'm just repeating CNN no. talking points, but there's a certain yes, character, exactly. you know, to be writing about it, a certain character type that, you know, I refer to as the castrator, <laughs> you know, they don't like yes. guns. They don't like guys who want, they don't yes. like people who have trucks. They don't like the concept yes. of the patriarchy. They don't like toxic masculinity. They don't like anything that's, you know, uh, loud or abrasive. And they want all of I that. I find a tremendous away. irony in the people who like kind of talk this way. And they're like, and then one day we're going to, we're going to colonize Mars and smash the patriarchy. I'm like, where do they hear what Mars represents? It's going to be funny. <laughs> like, they're, like they're finally going to get to Mars and like they have no idea that the planet it just represents right. war and masculine energy, <laughs> and it's just going to drive people insane. This would be a funny kind of through line in a movie of like you know all these sort of like super sort of amazing scientists go to Mars to colonize it, and then they're just driven to just sort of caveman, mad masculine energy and fight each other. That well, you know, you know what the the uh, probably uh, hopefully going to happen to Elon Musk. <laughs> well, you know what the cure for that though, you know, of course, as they say, Mars needs women. Yes, angry red women. That was my take on guns magically, though. There's something, and 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 there's something, you know, we there, there's something particularly for men. Um, it's good to be you like you have to embrace, you know, not to suddenly get all Tom of Finland or something, but it's like you have to. And I think that Crowley, or if you look at Crowley or Reich or Lacan, you know, I did I did Reichian therapy for four years, so I really and you know, and I so I really got this. It's like you have to embrace yeah, yeah. a phallic stance. You have to be, you know, yeah. it's as important for men. And that's something that I think people have forgotten. I and mean, that's why they worship people like Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson or whatever. Not that that's necessarily a healthy, certainly not Jordan Peterson, a healthy representation, but no, but, um, no, 
for men, particularly male magicians, people look at Crowley, you have to embrace a phallic stance. You have to embrace forward directed will and intentionality and autonomy of force. You have to be able to embody it. You don't have to do it all the time and you shouldn't do it all the time. It's not appropriate for all situations, but you have to be able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fire is is the masculine, is a masculine principle. You know, it's fire, it's phallic, it's an active principle of the universe versus a passive principle of a sort of a chalice or a sort of feminine or, you know, a moon or water energy. It's like, they're, they're there. You got to have them both. You know, we need them both. And I think that, I think we're so desperate for um, understanding of, of sort of new formats of, of masculinity, uh, what we call the divine masculine, which there's you know almost no examples of. All everyone's told is that masculine energy is bad. Masculine is bad, 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 bad. But no one's told what the type of good masculinity is. And I think that uh, you know masculine energy, whether it's being exhibited by a female or a male, um, is important as important as female energy. And I think that. I think that there needs we're in desperate need of, of sort of positive, um, I guess, masculine role models. And I do think that like what you're saying is why people end up sort of getting so drawn to Joe Rogan as this sort of like character that people are like, man, this guy's really figured it all out. And it's just like, I'm not sure that he has. Maybe he just read more books than you and you just wanted to sort of listen to him talk about the books or something. I don't know. Not to shit on Joe Rogan. I don't, I don't listen to his podcast, but I do think it's a bit interesting phenomenon and it's more speaks to the sensibilities of people really looking for, for new formats of masculinity. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure what that are for people right now, but I, I think that's going to be something that is going to sort of define our, our needs in the future more. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I think that... Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it's just about masculinity. I just think that our culture is bereft of, I would, I would say bereft of good role models, but I think that our culture is just fundamentally sick, you know, and I don't yes. think it has to do with one group or the other necessarily. It's like everyone is sick and anemic yes. and, and lacking. And, you know, that's a spiritual yeah. lack in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. But I, I will say that one of the things even more than, cause I like martial arts too, but I think that a lot, you know, but I think even more than martial arts, there's something about the gun experience. I don't know what else to call it. If you go into it consciously, responsibly, I don't just mean like going to the gun range and popping off. Uh, I mean, yeah. like actually getting training from competent people. And there's not a whole lot of them, unfortunately. There's a lot of people training that should not be trainers. Yeah. We're just mall ninjas. Yeah. You know, I've met some of them and yes. they're, they're ridiculous. Yes. You got to really be careful, really be careful. Um, there, there's an abundance of them. Yeah. 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 Like, and you don't need to be credentialed. Anyone can say they're a gun trainer. Right. And it's like, and I don't, I don't mean buying yeah. a gun and sticking it in your sock drawer, which is a foolish thing to do. I mean, actually getting training from good people. There's something about that experience that just forces you to man up. I mean, it does. It's like, you have this thing in your hand. It's like, this is like the, you know, life or death, you know, it's like, this I can think, take I think in general, defend it. Or, or preserve life by think, defending your, you and your family from danger. And, you, and that forces yeah, you I think to it's, become a cognizant of that. It, it forces you to become more disciplined. It forces you to become more aware. It forces you to become, you know, even, you know, having this sort of proficiency with firearm, it's like you end up thinking that other people might have firearms too, which makes you more of a polite person sometimes. And yeah, it's just, it's a hard thing to explain. But, uh, you know, going back to what you're saying, I always encourage people who are going to be first-time gun owners to build their ar as well like 
guy would like, you know, from scratch, like I'll come build it with you. You should learn how the whole thing works because the idea that a gun is just sort of like, you know, your cell phone where you don't know how the fuck it works and you just go, yeah, take it for granted. Uh, but your gun, you should know exactly how that sort of rudimentary sort of, uh, you know, system works is it kind of is it's a fucking, it's a pipe with an exploding projectile in it at its core. Yeah. Um, and you should learn how that, that functions and, and be hyper aware of it because it is very dangerous. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe not as their very first uh, gun experience, but you know, as, as part of their process, definitely. I think it is certainly, yeah. certainly field yeah. stripping and taking it apart all the way down to the basics and putting it back together. And it goes with anything, you know, Glock, whatever. Um, big part of it, I think, particularly for the types types of guys who like to build computers and things like that, it's yeah. it can be a real obsessive <laughs> pursuit. Yeah. Well, let's. Well, say- it's like you know, like. Like anything, building a go kart and driving it is probably more fun than just driving a go kart. You know what I mean? It's like there's a certain sense of uh, you know accomplishment from when you're driving your own thing that you created. And you know it's sort of ins and outs and how to tune it and tweak it. It becomes obsessive. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk. Let's maybe we should wrap up by we should we should talk about magic because this is the Ultra Culture podcast. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. And so, we did. We tried to interweave it into our into our gun stuff. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I know it's like it's so easy to get get um, obsessive about. So um, you obviously are into magic that you don't make any secret about that. And so I'm kind of curious. Yeah. I guess I'm curious about three things. You know, how you got into it, what your experience like has been with it uh, and how it's kind of evolved and, and inter, interwoven with your um, stage, you know, your stage persona, your musical career, things yeah. like this, and kind of where you're at with it now and how you approach it. <laughs> just, just those. Yeah. I, yeah. Just those, just that little quick, that little quick one. Um, yeah, no, I, I think growing up, so my father is a, a holistic doctor, a, a Taoist. Um, so I think, having sort of like an understanding and awareness of, of sort of metaphysical energy and sort of bioenergetics from a young age definitely uh, made me more magically inclined. Um, you know, like I remember being hooked up to like, you know, curly and photography electrodes to take pictures of my aura when I was a child. Do you know what I mean? In his second book, the Tao of Chi, do you know what I mean? So like I was hyper aware of this stuff at a young age. Um, and as I got older, you know, starting to kind of connect more of the sort of dots of like where that fits into sort of the the sort of Western esoteric tradition um, combines sort of like some of his more Eastern philosophy and where that overlapped. I think a big moment for me was I did my university in Rome. Uh, I studied political science and I used to hang out in Campo dei Fiori into this uh, statue of Giordano Bruno, who you know, I remember talking to my history I've been there. professor. I've been there. I was like, yeah, who's that? Yeah, I was like, that statue. Yeah. I was like, who's this stat? I was like, who's this statue of? And he was like, oh, that's Giordano Bruno. He was burnt at the stake right there. And I remember thinking to myself, like, for what? Blah blah blah. Because I was like, I related to the statue because it kind of like looked like me. It was this dude with a hood and a mustache, and it just looked cool. And I was like, like that was my spot to vibe. I was wondering, I was so drawn to that. And then he explained to me that he was burned at the stake there as he was deemed a heretic from the church because he was studying sort of these sort of, um, you know, uh, hermetic arts and sort of neo, neo, neoplatonism and all these things that was sort of like, I was like, what's this? And I just ended up diving down these rabbit holes in our library of finding all this more, all this new information about, I guess, some of the more, I guess, uh, illustrious Renaissance magicians, if you will, um, which I, I just managed to capture my imagination so much because I think the way a lot of 
that story, those two stories are told, whether it's people like, you know, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa and, and these sort of, um, you know, uh, Western magicians or John D and Edward Kelly, all these sort of characters that I was just like, this is wild. Like I was like, I wanted to know what was real and what wasn't. And I just ended up sort of becoming completely obsessed with it. Um, and then met some interesting people in Rome and ended up studying with some various orders. Um, never I chose to not initiate because I'm, I'm not really into uh, frats in general. I'm more of like, you know, this is me and my own path type of thing. Um, but I guess the study never stopped. You know, it's one of those things that when you're a student of, of the sort of magical experience and, and you know, uh, esoteric traditions, you, you just kind of you forever keep learning, um, which is, I think, why they call it a practice. Um, when sometimes you're actually not practicing, you're actually, you know, maybe being more, uh, performative or executing, but it's still always a practice in one way or another. Um, so for me, that was the, the abridged version of that. Um, and then I just always kind of like at that point had incorporated into my, my creative work. Um, because at one point I think that you just sort of become magic and it's hard to separate the two. And I think that, I have a very practical approach to my magic where I think some of it is just how to preserve the childlike curiosity in myself. And then some of it might be more about like, you know, the art and science of, you know, creating a change and conformity with the will. Do you know what I mean? Like there's this sort of one really innocent sort of playful, I think like children are magic, you know, in, in pure innocent form, you know? And I think that's sort of preserving that. And I think that's the fool versus the magician and the zero and one card and how we sort of oscillate between those two things. Because if you stay too much in the sort of, you know, hype where a magician, maybe you become a bit jaded and a bit callous. So you need to be able to oscillate back to the full and sort of have that, you know, a, a precocious childlike sort of experience that allows you to sort of experience the wonderment of existence and nature and the world and all that stuff. That then you can go back and you can kind of run hard analysis on as a magician and kind of keep kind of, a, you know, is our sequencing code, which I always found interesting in that has, and the tarot is the zero and the one, um, is the fool and the magician. So in many ways, we have to create our own binary codes for our own situations uh, in this world. So for me, it was always that, um, and it's just been more refined as that. I think even with a band like Three Teeth, I didn't want it to be so overtly magical, which is why I called the band Three Teeth, when really that was just sort of a, a code for the trident, which, you know, um, the mm. trident is a sort of a magical tool that can be traced back to um, even the god Marduk and the Enuma Elish of the ancient Sumerians. Who Marduk killed Tiamat, which was the chaos monster to bring order into this world. And I've always been fascinated with the space between chaos and order and that sort of struggle that the Germans call chaos comp, that sort of eternal battle between those battleground between those two things. Um, and I, I wanted Three Teeth to sort of be uh, an homage to sort of this, um, you know, divine weapon of the gods that sort of creates and destroys, which, as you can see here in my forum, is that trident, which literally just means three teeth. So, you know, it's always there, but like in three teeth, you kind of have to peel back some layers to find it. Like, it's not like, you know, some bands are just like throwing it right on your face. And it's just like, Hey, we are overused aesthetic of magic. We but like, for me, I wanted to be something that, you know, if you didn't look for it, you wouldn't find it. But if you want to kind of go down the rabbit hole, I put a lot of pieces of popcorn to send you down there, you know? Um, so yeah, interesting. That's that's my magical experience in the abridged version. So where do you where do you feel that you're at with it now? I find myself sort of um, 
you know, like I've practiced ceremonial magic and ritual magic, but I don't find myself having the best results with stuff like that. Um, to me, like I said, I'm more very practical with it in, in my approach to it and sort of using, I guess, I hate to call it like media magic, but I think that, you know, using sort of more like a technosis, if you will, which is also a great book, um, and sort of using it sort of, uh, magic in sort of the information age i find where i have the, the the best results with it in terms of um whatever i'm trying to achieve which is usually something uh some sort of message or idea that uh or, or some sort of code that i'm trying to break or some sort of like i said psyop where i'm trying to use guerrilla ontology and stuff like that to sort of you know pull people out of their reality tunnels which i often think that um we could all use a little bit more of as they get yeah. you know those walls build up pretty fast. And I feel like if we can kind of constantly get those pulled down a little bit is when we can actually learn new things and expand our neuroplasticity in that respect, where we can sort of recondition and, and repattern, which I think we could just all use more of. Yeah, no, I agree. I think now more than ever, I, I think it's really important not to get complacent. And I think the other thing is it's really important as I've learned, unfortunately, recently, don't assume where people are at because people are, I think more, that's what I was kind of hitting at earlier. I think people are more asleep and conditioned now than ever, more than the nineties yes. or the eighties, maybe even more than the fifties yeah. now in weird new ways yeah. that involve creating these designer reality tunnels for them. And so I think yes. that for people yes. who have been around for a while, it's like, now's not the time to get complacent. Now's the time to like dust off the tools and polish them up a little bit and get to yeah. work. I think. Um, yeah, I think there's an interesting point that Adam, uh, that Adam Curtis recently made um, in some of his new documentary series where he was kind of talking about how uh, radical culture was, was sort of a way to kind of create that complacency where as much as we like to think is radical culture sort of being like, uh, oh, like, but this is how we're going to like, you know, be radical. Really, all it's doing is letting enough steam out of the pot so the lid doesn't blow off. So it's like, that's why we're just like, everything feels so radical right now, but it's actually just a way to keep things more complacent, which is, which yep. is kind of a fucked up way to look at it. And oftentimes no, like true, it's really yeah. disheartening because it's like, what are we supposed to do then? And I think that Adam Curtis, Curtis explaining that in his new documentary series really kind of breaks down this sort of, um, this sort of uh, relationship in, between uh, where we shifted from collectivism to just pure other rampant individualism. And I think the individual uh, as these sort of units of one is sort of why we're sort of where we're at, you know? And he kind of explains that like uh, going into the woods by yourself at night is much scarier than going into the, you go into the woods with a group of friends. It's fun. You're having a blast. You go in by yourself. It's a little scary. And this idea that, you know, collectivism has really just completely died off and everyone's so hyper individual, you know, you have people marching in the streets, like not in my name versus like not in our name. Everything is so about the individual now that we are sort of atomized in that respect. We're sort of powerless. Um, and, and, and sort of, that's why we have this sort of visionless future. And I think that you see these sort of, uh, upstarts of collectivism, whether it be, you know, MAGA or Black Lives Matter. And that's where things start to get a little like, you know, uprisey and like, maybe some change might be able to happen again. And I guess it begs the question. I'm not saying one is better than the other, because I think a lot of horrors have been done under collectivism. Um, but I also think that we're sort of in a position where we have to really reconcile what it means to be living in a purely individualized, sort of atomized existence, where we are all sort of rendered powerless because it is so much individuality. There's, people aren't joining political parties anymore at all. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. political parties no longer serve people, so we're not to blame 
but you know political parties are serving you know uh, corporate interest you know uh, who are banking platforms and right who are group are, are yeah, who are collectivists exactly. yeah, so, they're, so, so they're they more serve powerful. those sort of yeah so they serve these sort of political parties are sort of serving these unelective sort of collective in, uh, bodies of these things that i just mentioned so that's why they're just aligned for that and then everyone else is just sort of left just being like hey i guess we're just going to sort of shout and do our sort of like radical art thing but meanwhile all that's doing is just letting us sort of uh punch ourselves out on the bag a little bit do you know yeah. what i mean where it's like no one's actually yeah. collectively unified in that respect i so wish people realized I think that it, i wish people realized yeah. that i mean that guy de Boer pointed that out in the society of the spectacle in the 60s or so that you know you can't and we've seen it this year where it's like you can revolt and resist all you want but the 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 power structure will just absorb it and spit it back to you and the next thing you know it's like you know Absolutely. black lives matter logos in on military bases you know or on yeah, Amazon. exactly next thing you know, you know raytheon next thing you know raytheon has the the rainbow drone that they're killing right. kids in yemen with and you're like wait what the fuck Right, and it's not even a joke, you know. It's like, so I think <laughs> no, um, it's not a joke. That's real. <laughs> so um, this this makes me wonder. I've been wondering recently about this. this. Makes me wonder about Thalema a lot. You know, it's like you look at Thalema and like you know this radical clarion call for the individual autonomy of the the sovereign will, and it's like, well, what if that's actually the most you know, the, you know, what if, what if the call, which, you know, you mentioned just do it. I mean, I think just do it is the real yeah. polemic word of the aeon, you know, the real distillation of it. Yeah. But it's like, you look at that and it's like, where does it lead people? Where does the individualism go? It's like to hear where everyone's angry all the time and sick and lonely and, you know, yeah. and distrusting of each other. No one trusts, no one trusts anyone anymore. There's just a, you know, just intense tribalism where like, like these tribal units are also atomized into sort of micro tribal units and everyone's just like looking out for, you know, them and their five friends. You know what I mean? Like that's all in their family. That's all anyone gives a shit about anymore. There's, there's very much no sense of society anymore. And I think that because of that, we do have, you know, uh, this total visionless future right now, which is it's sort of a sad time where everyone's just sort of feeling exhausted and, and beat up by it, which they're just decided was like, Hey, you know what? I'll just kind of like live for the next, piece of dopamine which is kind of yeah. sad you know? this makes me i really i would like to talk to grant again about this because he was talking about this in the 90s where he was saying it's like you know the individual breaks down at its edges and maybe orwell and huxley were wrong maybe we actually want to merge into this kind of borg collective maybe that actually maybe i think not really yeah. that cool I think I think the pendulum will swing, and as it always does with everything, especially in politics. You know what I mean? Where it's like, um, you know, we had these sort of collective things that defined our history up until this point, and then, you know, like I said, we've sort of been atomized. And I think that moving forward, that I do think they're going to see these sort of uh, resurgence of collectivism. I just fucking hope that it's not going to be a bunch of right wing fascist insanity, which it kind of feels like it's about to be, yeah. um, which is, is even scarier, you know? Yeah, that is scary. And I, I don't know if you follow Chris Hedges at all, but, um, I do not. Yeah. Chris Hedges is, you know, he used to write for truth Day before it shut down, but you know, has been one of the best writers and voices on the left for a long time. But, you know, I was watching something with him recently where he was saying that, you know, speaking of taking back to the 80s and 90s, you know, it's like the real fascist threat in America is Christianity, you know, quote unquote Christianity. He's a he's a Christian. He's like a Lutheran minister. So he sees Christianity in America. Mm -hmm. He's not anti-Christian. He sees Christianity in America as a heresy, 
like the kind of Joel Osteen prosperity yeah. church, you know, like like war for Israel, yeah. nonstop kind of insanity. Um, and he thinks that, you know, yeah. he made this very sobering point, which was like, Trump was just a dry run. Imagine he was incompetent. You know, whoever they get in, whoever the Republicans yeah. get in next, imagine Mike Pompeo yeah. as president, you know, yeah. is the point that he made. Yeah. That's really I think scary. like I always worried about like, yeah, like imagine if Trump was like a gifted orator that was like actually charming and like wasn't just like a total like bag of meat on a stage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. it, it would be like actually super scary. Um, but the truth of the matter is, you know, I'm not sure if like Mike Pompeo gets it done because there is something about like, you know, like you have to have it was almost like because Trump was so dumb and because he was such an outsider. It's like I can't I constantly try and figure out how Trump was elected. And I really just come down to the fact that I think people are so fucking sick of everything that we've been doing for so long that they were like, let's just give this guy a sh shot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people who won't admit that they voted for Trump voted for Trump who ended up getting elected. Um, I don't think it was, I don't think it was Russians. Um, I, no, I, I absolutely a, a not. Silly sort of, yeah. I, well, I, I have a pretty just, prosaic or pretty basic version of why Trump was elected, which is if you look at the numbers on the 2016 election, less people voted for Trump than Mitt Romney. So the reason that yeah. Trump won was because the nobody, A, nobody liked Hillary. But also the Democrats yeah. became so apathetic and complacent. And then um, what's her name? Yes. Debbie Wasserman Schultz decided to stab Bernie in the back. So they alienated. They basically yes. divided their yes. own party for Bernie. And then just yeah. Trump defaulted in. But less people. Yeah. There wasn't like this sudden like upsurge of fascism. It's like it's not that there's not yeah. fascism in America, but it never goes away. It's just that, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party uh, got, got overconfident, I think, on that one. That it's also the Democratic Party, just like you know, Hillary Clinton isn't a bad person, she just has no ability to capture the imagination of anyone. Do you know what I mean? Like, he might and be I a think bad person, like, say what you want about Trump, but like, I think he's certainly, yeah, he, he might be a bad person, but he certainly, oh, yeah, Hillary Clinton might a be a bad person, person also. He definitely, she's probably a bad, she's probably a bad person. Too. I think, I think so. anyone that achieves any of that <laughs> level of, 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 if you get up to that level, it's through draconian means, you know what I mean? Like. But yes, I, I no pun intended. Day, like, the reason she couldn't win, yeah, she couldn't win is because she couldn't capture anyone's imagination. She's a fucking cardboard up there, you know what I mean? So, you know, we're just so desperate for leadership in this country. And I don't mean necessarily presidential leadership. I just mean anyone yeah. that might have anything to say about anything. No, know? I agree. Which and that's like why going, I agree. Yeah. No, and I think you made a point earlier, which was really, which I also very much agree with, which is that, you know, maybe the fact that the presidency is no longer is is just seen as a ridiculous institution. Maybe that's good. I mean, it's like, you know, we've been evolving out of this and we should be evolving out of this ridiculous need for tribal figureheads, at least at that scale. But, you yeah. know, yeah, we do have a leadership crisis. It's not really a masculinity crisis because it doesn't really have to, anything to do with gender. It's, no, no. you know. Um, male no, it's or just female leadership. It's or non-binary leaders. Yeah. You need people who, who to step yeah. up and, and someone and get up there and can actually people. like make fucking sense. You know, someone who can actually right. make sense. Like, there's just so few people that ever fucking like get up there and say anything that I'm like, well, that makes sense. Like, everyone's just like right. on some crazy shit lately. Well, and if we don't do it, other people will. You know, and it's like we're now in yes. such a dearth of leadership that people can get up and not make sense. Like uh, Jordan Peterson, yeah. and people will be like, "That's genius," just because like they're not used to hearing people talk. 
you know, for long periods of yeah. time, and it's kind of entertaining. Absolutely, so it's oratory, it's rhetoric. I've been writing a song. There's a, a new song on our, on our record called "The Merchant of the Void," and it sort of speaks about how, like, you know, if you can't see your future, I'll sell one to you. If you can't find the meaning, I'll tell it to you. And it's just that, like, okay. if people can't see a future, it's like this is exactly what's going to happen, and it's continuing to happen right now. With, you know, Elon Musk, for example, like that's the vision of our future right now because he's going to sell it to everyone because right. there's no one else fucking doing it. Well, I'm not anti-Elon. I actually quite like Elon, but um, I think that. Yeah. But, but the overall point is. I agree with you on, and I think that, um, uh, but that's true, you know, that we don't even need to extrapolate that to a society-wide thing. I think just in an ind- one individual's life, even within your own life, if you, yes. like, you know, it's like, if, yeah. what's the classic thing? If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Exactly. You know, and I feel like that's sort of where we're all at right now. We're, we're sort of thirsty for meaning. We're thirsty for vision and people are just going to gobble up wherever is the first thing that gets thrown on their face right now and it's sad you know yeah well if you could maybe just to wrap up if you could pass on if there's one little bit of magical uh wisdom if you could pass on um you know one if you could say something to everyone and just give one little insight what would it be I mean, it would probably be really simple. I feel like if you're going to do something, be passionate. If Whatever you're going to create, be passionate with it. I feel like there's a lot of music and, and art that's being created that sort of lacks a sense of passion. And I think it's so important to sort of, you know, really, really have that intention and that care for what you're doing as opposed to just sort of putting something out there that sort of dilutes what art can be because i do think it's incredibly important that we still have that i think it gives you know people those little glimmers of that vision and that meaning that sort of keep us alive for right now so i think that you know just be passionate about what you create you know yeah i agree well thank you very much where can people find out more about you and what do you where, where should we point them I mean, I mean, my Instagram is Alexis uh, at Alexis Mincola. That's M-I-N-C-O-L-L-A. Bane is called Three Teeth, the number three and just teeth, no spaces. And, you know, I'm sure you can, uh, you know, consult the Google Oracle and find out all the information that you may want or may not want. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, we should do it again sometime in the near future. Definitely. And, uh, you know, Definitely. I don't know. Talk soon, buddy. All right, hope you really enjoyed that. Please meet me at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, the world's greatest school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. Meet me in the Adept Initiative course and or in office hours where we do live one-on-ones. That could be you. You could be in the hot seat. Really looking forward to seeing you in class, and I will see you in the next episode. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get podcasts. May, uh, subscribe to the, the new YouTube channel. It's just Jason Louve on YouTube. Get me on Instagram, at magic.me. We got tons of content coming out. We got at least one podcast and uh, long-form YouTube coming out every week now. There's tons of new content, so make sure you follow us on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts, and I will see you at magic.me. All right, until next time.